the first thing dictators do is finish free press to establish censorship. There is no doubt that a free press is the first enemy of dictatorship. That quote comes from 1959 and was spoken by Fidel Castro. Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott. That was Uncle Ian. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a podcast obsessed with history's greatest dictators. Usually we talk about two individual dictators and discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of each battle is eliminated. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. This week we are not discussing two individual dictators. We are doing a retrospective episode on the 20 dictators we have covered thus far. Here's a quick update on where we are in the tournament. First round, Julius Caesar beat Benito Mussolini. Ivan the Terrible lost to Vladimir Lenin. Xerxes was defeated by Saddam Hussein. Genghis Khan beat out Deng Xiaoping. Fidel Castro lost to Francois Duvalier. Henry VIII defeated Oliver Cromwell. Pol Pot beat Ho Chi Minh. Enver Pasha defeated Recep Erdogan. Idi Amin beat Robert Mugabe and Augusta Pinochet lost to Jorge Videa. So, Uncle Ian, the part that I find very interesting is is the rise to power. Who came to power peacefully and, and by legal means? So, Scott, from that list you just went through, it's almost like the majority seem to have come to power through legal and peaceful means. So, for example, Duvalier won an election. Henry VIII inherited the monarchy from his father. The Pashas came to power relatively peacefully in the dying days of the Ottoman Empire. Caesar came to power through legal means. So an overwhelming majority of those dictators came to power without actually any bloodshed. We have a few revolutionaries in there, most famously uh, Castro, was a revolutionary. Mugabe wanted to be a revolutionary, but was almost backed into a corner by the independence talks and the peaceful elections in, in 1980 in, in what we now know as Zimbabwe. Lenin, as well, as another very famous revolutionary. He, his rise to power was not peaceful. Ho Chi Minh fits both the categories because he's revolutionary and yet came to power quite peacefully. The other one who came to power very peacefully and legally Erdogan, who is still president of Turkey. And just on Erdogan, Scott, I, I have a feeling that President Erdogan is, is a bit of a fan of Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause because the week after we recorded our Ottoman Turkey episode, he made the decision to change the status of the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, longtime Orthodox Church. He turned it back into a mosque, but he waited till the week after we'd recorded the episode in order to do that. That cannot be a coincidence. Obviously, he wasn't counting on the retrospective episode to name and shame him. It's possible he'd heard the result of the episode. This was the only way he was going to get any further mention in our podcast. There's a chance that he might get it. <laughs> he might be able to earn a spot back in with his activities. 
Um, isn't he going to war with Greece at the moment? Well, that's another interesting point in terms of dictators, because there's nothing like a war for national unity. Is an old trick, but a, a very good one. Saddam tried that a few times. Mussolini was a big fan. The Argentine Junta famously went to war in the Falklands in order to try and achieve national unity. Ironically, the national unity that was achieved as a result of the Falklands War was the national unity in the UK, not in Argentina. The other update we have for you is in regards to Cambodia. Uncle Ian, I'm not sure if you saw, but Comrade Dutch passed away. I, I hadn't heard that. Did he pass away from peaceful means or from... Peacefully, unfortunately. Comrade Dutch was Pol Pot's right-hand man. He ran the horrific S-21 torture camps in Cambodia. He died last week. I just don't understand how that horrific event is so recent that this man could be dying peacefully last week. He's had that, hopefully on his conscience, he's had that on his conscience for more than 40 years. Yeah. And hopefully it's weighed heavily on his conscience. It brings me to legacy. Who is remembered today? Of those 20... I'm going to pick three from the list, Scott, that I think are remembered today. Naturally, Julius Caesar's on my list, Lenin's on my list, and rightly or wrongly, Henry VIII is on my list as well. They'd be the three I'd pick. That's my three. We haven't colluded on this, on this, folks, I assure you. In addition to the three dictators we remember, I also have in there Mussolini, um, but he's mostly remembered for being Hitler's lackey rather than for anything he did himself. I learned a new thing about Mussolini, which I regrettably did not include in the podcast episode about Mussolini. He tried to switch the Italians over from pasta to rice because he believed that the pasta made the Italians sluggish and rice would make work harder and faster. Gee, I don't understand. What what could put you offside more with the Italian people than trying to get them off pasta? Look, I'm appalled. Having been adopted into a Mediterranean family, I'm absolutely appalled. And given that rice needs a lot of land and water, I don't know where he was going to find flat land. I don't know where he was going to find it to grow it, unless that was the plan for him wanting to grow the rice in some of the countries he wanted to invade, like Ethiopia and Greece. Greece also not known for its water supply. <laughs> Very true. So let me turn the question around, Scott, in terms of who's not remembered today. So what are some of the what are some of the names from that list that aren't being talked about when when people meet up at a safe distance in the street today? I think Duvalier, given how horrific he was. Pasha, given that the Armenian genocide's still not recognised. Pol Pot you sit somewhere in the middle, even Mugabe to a degree, given that we're currently printing money <laughs> to pay off the coronavirus. It's a bit worrying. I think we've maybe forgotten the lessons of Zimbabwe. We'll see. In terms of the end of the dictator's career, many had a peaceful death. I've got this list here of the peaceful death. We've got Pol Pot, Henry VIII, Idi Amin, Mugabe, Pinochet, Ho Chi Minh, Castro, Duvalier, Deng Xiaoping, Lenin, Ivan the Terrible, who died while playing chess, and Videa died of natural causes, but in prison. That's 12 out of 19. Uh, 19 because Erdogan's still alive. That is just too many. We're doing a bad job of tracking down these dictators. It certainly doesn't fit the stereotype 
of the Caesar-like death, for example, where someone dies a glorious death as part of a counter-coup, for example, and that number of 12 is actually, in a way, it's a little bit disappointing, but it's certainly quite surprising that so many had a, a relatively peaceful death. Of all of those people, have we only got one that was actually sentenced to death and executed? Oh, two if you count Mussolini. So was Saddam the only one who was sentenced to death and executed? Yeah, by a somewhat official body. I mean, Mussolini was just killed by thugs in the street. Partisans, I think we say now. Who, Partisans. Who may have been pasta fans, perhaps we'll never know. <laughs> we have to assume so. And in terms of who actually was able to give an orderly exchange of power, there's a few that have managed that. So Pinochet did it in Chile. Videa did it in Argentina. And then Henry VIII passed on to his son and then daughters. And Fidel Castro's given the the leadership of Cuba to his brother. And Deng Xiaoping also managed to yep. leave orderly and, and hand over the reins. As did de Valier to his son, to Baby Doc. When Cromwell died, the Lord Chief Protector became Cromwell's son, Richard Cromwell, although he didn't have quite the appetite for the role. And, and as we covered in episode six, that then led to the restoration of the monarchy through Charles II. Mugabe was cornered into a peaceful handover in reality by firstly his advanced age and secondly his wife's credit card bill. (laughs) How good is Gucci Grace? I I think Gucci Grace is going to have some real competition as we go further through the tournament, Scott, because there are some uh, dictator's wives out there who will give her uh, credit card bill a, a run for its money. I think we could do a whole new show on the dictator's wives. Well... Sadly, we're talking about countries that were not only under a dictatorship, but really under a kleptocracy. Family rule and families bleeding the country dry, where they can afford to go into exile for for 20 years and live in luxurious circumstances. (laughs) Like in the top two floors of the Novotel. I don't know if the Novotel at Jeddah actually still makes reference to the fact that they had a famous guest there with all those Father's Day presents for so many years. He's talking about Idi Amin. If I ever make the decision to go to Jeddah, I will guarantee you I'll be staying at the Novotel and I'll be demanding Idi Amin's rooms. The, the trouble with Idi Amin's rooms is you can't just call it the presidential suite <laughs> because it's got to be the, the full title. Oh Keeper of the loaves and fishes and etc. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal El Hajj, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, CBE, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and Uganda in particular. So if you're in the elevator at the Novotel in Jeddah and that's the label for the fourth floor, the elevator is not going to be big enough to have that label on, on the suite. So in terms of exile, yes, we do have Idi Amin and we also have Pol Pot who went to exile into the jungles of Cambodia on, on the border with Thailand. Dictatorship doesn't seem to hold many back from living a long and happy life. If you're worried about your health, just become a dictator. Yeah, and I think partially, and certainly in Mugabe's case, that was because you had access to money to pay for medical treatment. But you look at Pinochet, Mugabe, you look at Castro, you look at Deng, all lived well into their 90s. And Deng Xiaoping was probably the unhealthiest man alive. He smoked like a chimney. Oh, yes. He he was a couple of packets a day. Good communist cigarettes, of course, but he spent more money on cigarettes than he did on clothes, I suspect. I guess that leads us to another element, Scott, in terms of are there any similarities between these dictators in how they portrayed themselves to the... In terms of dress, in terms of appearance... um, are there any of those dictators there that had any 
commonalities, any sort of signature elements of their appearance? Well, there was a lot of military regalia, which is one of our items on Dictator Bingo. So Idi Amin with the medals and we've got Castro War military dress. The fatigues, yes. But then you got someone like Duvalier who dressed up as a mythical voodoo demigod. Lord High Priest or something. Yes, exactly. He was pretending to be the Lord of the Underworld, the Keeper of the Graveyard. So he wore very strange clothes. But then you had Mugabe, who used to wear the the tailored suits and then transitioned into like these loud, bright, colourful clothing. I think one of which had, he had a suit with his face printed on it repeatedly. I thought we'd encounter more military dress and all that sort of stuff. That's certainly common in Africa and South America when you've got the military coups and then they give themselves more medals. The communists wear drab clothing to, to show that they're a man of the people. The military men wear the military uniform. And then you've got the kings and queens who show how powerful they are and how they shouldn't be trifled with by covering themselves in jewel. A pretty good summary, and, and you're right. People like Deng and, and Castro wanted to show or at least have the people think that they would know better off. And you're right, people like Pinochet did want to appear still as the strong man and therefore wanted to appear that it still looks like he's a general, it still looks like he's got an army and all those tanks and all those rifles and bayonets behind him if he needs them. I want to talk about the UN. We've been giving the UN a bit of grief. So we've had Erdogan, Saddam and Mugabe being recognised by the UN. Mugabe was recognised via the World Health Organisation, which is affiliated with the UN. And I'm not sure if the UN were around during Genghis Khan's time, but I'm sure they would have given him an award for fostering international trade or something, although he probably would have been too busy beheading entire cities to receive the award in person. That concept of the UN recognising dictators, a lot of it, Scott, comes down to the fact that so many dictators started off relatively well from our perspective. And people like Saddam and people like Mugabe and certainly Castro started off very well in terms of literacy programs, in terms of health programs. Saddam, quite surprisingly, was a big proponent of education for girls and women in his early days. That element naturally screams out for international recognition but in those particular cases after a few years they went bad so we're probably fortunate scott and the last thing i want to do is make light of the suffering of the cambodian people we're probably fortunate that pol pot was only in power for a few years because all the other dictators that we've talked about had a good start and then went bad pol pot was bad from the beginning The other one who had good beginnings was Erdogan. He had a lot of great infrastructure projects and liberalisation of Turkey. That's all worsened from after basically you realise he's not going to get into the EU. Then he thought, all right, well, I may as well do what I want. And that's an interesting component as well. That whole should Turkey be part of the EU was one of the big elements in the British referendum as to whether or not the UK should stay within the EU, the opponents of Britain staying in the EU played very strongly on the fact that Turkey was keen to join the EU and would that de-Europeanise the EU and therefore what was the point of Britain still remaining part of it? That was a massive component of that referendum campaign. I want to talk about longest rule and short rules. You mentioned uh, Pol Pot. He had the shortest rule, four years, did a lot of damage in four years. Cromwell, five years. The other end of the spectrum, you've got Mugabe, 37 years. Henry VIII, 38 years. Castro, 49 years. 
Uncle Ian, do you know who our winner is? Who's our winner going to be, Scott? I'm just... Ivan the Terrible, 51 years. Ivan the Terrible. He did a lot of damage in a very long period of time. He, he, he did, but then... And I know we covered this in episode two, Scott, but we remember Ivan the Terrible now because of his name, but that's pretty much the only reason we remember him. He was the first Tsar of Russia. He did unite Russia into one country, so he did do that. And he did do a lot of torturing, but yes, that is the reason that we remember him because of his excellent nickname, slash also mistranslated nickname. What was the closest episode, do you think? Because we've had a few tight ones. I think episode three, when we compared Genghis Khan with Deng Xiaoping, was a real surprise to me. Certainly Genghis has got that reputation as being quite focused on his imperial ambitions and being prepared to use force to achieve his aims. I think we had a tighter contest than we thought, balancing that against Deng's opening up of China, opening it up to make it more of a a free market economy. To me, that was one of the most difficult decisions we had to make. That was a tough one. The other one I thought was close was Pinochet Videa and also Henry VIII and Oliver Cromwell. But yeah, definitely the tightest one was Deng Xiaoping, Genghis Khan, which was a massive surprise given Genghis's reputation on the streets against Deng's, who is another one that's been forgotten but he's responsible for the fact that the teacup that you're drinking out of says made in China at the bottom. What about the episode that was the least close? There was just two absolute drubbings. Uh, Julius Caesar was always going to win against Mussolini. I don't think that was any secret. And from what we know about Xerxes, Saddam Hussein was always going to come out the winner in that episode, Scott. The other one was Pol Pot Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh, look, not a lovely man, but Pol Pot absolutely destroyed him. He'd just done too much in Cambodia in that short period of time for Ho Chi Minh to stand any chance in that competition. But I just want to make a quick note on the chicken sandwich. There's been a lot of talk about the chicken sandwich. Apparently it was invented after the Mongols invaded Russia and the Mongols, they took the nobles of Russia, placed them on the ground, put a platform on top of them, crushing the Russians, and then ate their lunch on top of their conquered enemies. And I was told they did not eat a chicken sandwich because that was invented after the conquest of Russia. It was invented in 1762 by John Montagu, the fourth Earl of Sandwich. Montagu had a substantial gambling problem that led him to spend hours at the end of a card table. So during a long binge, he asked one of the cooks, said, bring me something that he could eat without getting up from his gambling table. And then the sandwich was created by the cook for him. So we can thank gambling. So next time you're at the casino, get a sandwich. I I hasten to add that Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is not sponsored by any gambling companies. We're not sponsored by anyone at the moment. There's a gap in the market. There's a gap in the market. If you've got a company, perhaps a chicken sandwich company, I hope there's no controversial chicken sandwich companies. Yeah, It would need to be uh, RSPCA approved. We've got to talk about wordsmiths. There's a few wordsmiths. Uncle Ian, who's your favourite wordsmith of the group of 20? I think Duvalier's efforts to rewrite the Lord's Prayer in his own name qualify him as a wordsmith. How does it start? Our president who arted the presidential palace, hallowed be thy name, something like that. It was the gist of that. Episode 5, folks, if you want to listen back to it. I think the best wordsmith is Pinochet. That, those quotes were fantastic. I am going to die. The person who succeeds me would also die, but election you will not have. And not a single leaf moves in this country if I'm not the one moving it. My library is full 
of UN condemnations. That's just good stuff. But the best individual quote, everyone knows what I'm about to say. Everyone knows, but I'm going to say it anyway. There is freedom of speech, but I cannot guarantee freedom after speech. Idi Amin. A few fans of the show told me they liked this one. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. Vladimir Lenin. Soon, there will be merch, and on the merch will be just various quotes of dictators. And people will say, you can't just put dictator quotes on my coffee cup or my my T-shirt. That might be a little bit on the nose. Look, you'll be right. Just, you're working from home now. (laughs) You can't get fired for your coffee cup. Given, given that the Che Guevara shirt has been out there for a while, we're really only broadening that opportunity. There probably won't be any Hitler merch. <laughs> Arnon Ian, who is the most deranged individual? Out of the 20? Well, only one. Look, it's interesting because I think a lot of them exercised derangement at various times of their careers. Devalier certainly had his share of derangement. Pol Pot has to have been. But I think it comes back to Idi Amin. Idi Amin? I think so. In terms of extreme derangement, there are some on the list I would never say were deranged. I'd, I'd never say that Caesar or Lenin or Castro were deranged. Henry VIII possibly when it got to the stage of the break with Rome for that part of his career. I think it's Idi Amin probably adds that to his ever-lengthening list of titles. There's a difference, between, like you said, Caesar. You know, killed a lot of people, got a lot done, but he was mentally stable. And I think Saddam's mentally stable, although sick. But then you have someone like Duvalier who was not mentally stable. That brings me to what was the maddest ideology? Lenin's communist utopia is quite naive, but it's consistent, has an ideology which you can follow. But then you have Duvalier running the country according to Haitian voodoo logic and Cromwell's puritism, purely mad because he banned Christmas. But then you've got Pol Pot taking Cambodia back to year zero with no technology, medicine or professionals. Just a country of peasant farmers wearing identical clothing and being forced to marry whoever the dictator chooses for them. I think that's got to be the maddest ideology. I think that's pretty fair. And in Lenin's defence, such as it is, Russia, or what became the Soviet Union, was was the first country to give Marx a try. Whereas every subsequent communist dictatorship has been able to see what, what happened in Russia, what's happened in China, what's happened in Eastern Europe, and, and yet we, uh, we still get communist dictatorships coming along today, even with all those lessons of the last hundred years. What about the warning signs of dictatorship? And it's important for everyone to know. The one that stands out to me is, is chaos. Chaos leads to an authoritarian establishment of order. For example, World War One, that destabilization of the country leads to Lenin taking power in Russia. Also, the chaos of Argentina and Chile lead to those right-wing coups. Idi Amin is the exact same. Any sort of chaos where things start getting out of hand, the public are actually keen for a strong man to take over. 
Well, that happened in the Ottoman Empire too, Scott, in the years in the lead up to the the First World War with the Young Turk movement, because the Ottomans were having great difficulty keeping the empire together. Remember, this was an empire that at one stage stretched from the, the Persian Gulf to Libya, to the Caucasus, to the Balkans. By the early years of the 20th century, the Ottoman Empire was having difficulty holding all those different backgrounds, those different nationalities together. I recall that it was the sick man of Europe at the time. In, indeed, it was known for, for a long time, the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe. Our, our history teacher was very keen that we saw it in that light. If he's out there listening to the podcast, I hope he's enjoying the fact that we're still using that terminology. The funny thing is that the Tsar of Russia makes the claim that the Ottoman Empire is a sick man of Europe. But by the end of the First World War, they had been destabilised to the point of two revolutions in Russia and the Tsars were killed. Well, indeed, the First World War, in reality, led to the dissolution of so many regimes, the Hohenzollerns, the, the Habsburgs, the Romanovs and the Ottomans. All of those regimes were wiped during or as a direct result of the, the First World War. So some other warning signs. President takes control of the courts. Erdogan is prime example. International journalists banned. I saw that some Australian journalists. It was <laughs> suggested that they leave uh, China this week. Free speech crackdowns, of course. Um, early attempts at a coup. I mean, Castro attempted two or three coups before he ended up getting the job done. Lenin was arrested for trying to incite a revolution and then was released and then allowed to have another crack. Yeah, um, ditto Mugabe. Spent a lot of a lot of time in jail. It was it eleven years? I think Mugabe was in jail, earning all those economics degrees, which he subsequently managed to forget all about when he <laughs> when he tried to reform the means of production of the country. Yeah, there's a few other dictators we haven't met yet who had early goes at coups as well. In fact, there's one very famous dictator who tried to run a coup at the point of a gun, but then ended up coming to power by legal means. The other one that we need to look out for is the subordinate. Always watch out for the subordinate who gets a great deal of popularity amongst the people. Julius Caesar, who's a general in the army, comes to power through his sheer popularity with the public and also having the backing of the army behind him. Idi Amin's another one. And also Oliver Cromwell, who managed to become so powerful through his military achievements and then the the popularity that earns him. And next week, we're going to cover a certain Frenchman who does the same thing. And to that end, both Pinochet and Vidaya were appointed to their roles as commanders in the army by their predecessors, which, with the benefit of hindsight, perhaps they needed to do more reference checking before putting the appointment through to HR. Yeah. <laughs> so, Uncle Ian, this is a question I've been looking forward to asking you. Which dictator would you most like to have dinner with? He's looking at his, the list of names. Who's he going to pick? There's only one. I know you're going to say. There's only one, Scott, and, and that's got to be Julius Caesar. Yeah. Not just because I studied Latin and therefore could actually carry on a conversation with him, but the breadth of Caesar's career. He wasn't just a soldier. He was Pontifex Maximus. He was a lawyer and an advocate in the, in the courts. He was a politician from an, from an early age, as well as a very successful general. He was a very successful author. I think there's a lot to talk about with Julius Caesar. If I had to pick a runner-up, if Julius Caesar was already booked, 
Um, he was having dinner with someone else that day. Possibly. Or he thought the restaurant was a pasta restaurant and turned out to serve only rice, for example. <laughs> There's no way I'm having dinner with Mussolini. If we had to make another booking, I think Henry VIII is a real chance. Yeah. The early Henry VIII. Scott, I think I can have a guess at who your dinner party invitees would be. Yeah. Um, but I'll, uh, I'd be keen to hear your reasons. I've said Caesar as well. Just because I'd like to have dinner with someone sane. Idi Amin would be memorable. <laughs> so I, if I was feeling lucky that day, maybe I'd pick Idi Amin. He's really funny, really charming. And if he doesn't kill you, he, he might even just try to play the accordion for me. What about this, Uncle Ian? I know my answer. Maybe you'll say the same thing. Which dictator would you travel back in time to kill at an opportune moment? If there's someone on that list whose death you could justify to prevent what he did, in the assumption that no one else would step in to fill the void, which is always the problem, especially with those yuntas, that there's always like the next general in line would turn out to be just as bad. Or worse. Or worse. Any resemblance to the current US presidency, vice presidency situation is purely coincidental. <laughs> Look, I think it's got to be Pol Pot. Oh, you're killing Pol Pot? I think it's got to be Pol Pot. Now, admittedly, we talked about his colleagues, and we've got no guarantee that others wouldn't have stepped in. But if you had the chance to prevent what happened to Cambodia and the trauma that survives today, then I think he'd be my choice. See, I was going one step earlier. I'm thinking Vladimir Lenin. So the February Revolution in Russia was set to turn Russia into a liberal democracy like France's uh, revolution. How'd that work out? Bad in the short term. <laughs> Better in the long term. I suppose we'll find out soon. Yes. But Lenin's October-November coup ended that hope of a democratic Russia. Lenin's rule led to Stalin, Beria, Khrushchev. The Soviet Union's pact with Hitler helped him invade Poland. The Soviet Union invaded the eastern half of Poland while... Hitler invaded the western half of Poland and that pact that they made allowed Hitler to to do that and also declare war on France and Western Europe. And then the Soviet Union inspired and funded Mao in China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Cuba, Angola, Nicaragua, Germany, Poland, Romania, Yugoslavia, North Korea, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Albania, Sudan and the Congo and Cuba. Look, we don't know Marx's ideas, where they would have gone had Lenin not existed. But certainly, Lenin did not make improvements on Marx's ideas. And a lot of these Marxist communist countries were inspired and funded by Lenin's Russia. The implication there is if if there was no Lenin, that a Trotsky or a Stalin, who was around at the time of the revolution, wouldn't have obtained power and had some long-reaching effects at the same time. Yes, so that's my assumption. That's my hope. Stalin could have even had a longer tenure if he was the man who orchestrated the revolution. However, Lenin was ceaseless in his ambition to take power. The other um, members of the Bolsheviks were nervous. They didn't want to stage this coup. They thought it was impossible. It was never going to happen. It wasn't going to work. So they were, they were talking and plotting. Lenin came back from Switzerland and said, no, we're doing it. We're doing it tomorrow. And he was successful because the, the provisional government in Russia was so weak. I can't guarantee you it would work, but I think that without him, the October-November revolution may not have happened. The only other person I considered was Genghis Khan, 
because he's another one who, as an individual, made history. Without him, the Mongol Empire fell apart. It was entirely based on his greatness. Let's talk about Dictator Bingo. We've been talking about Dictator Bingo. Let's get it done. We've got a few points. The self-declaration as president for life. That's game over right there. Fake elections, of course. A secret police force with a gentle-sounding name. That, that's, that's one of my favorites. You've got Uganda's P- Public Safety Unit, um, very similar to, we mentioned, the French Revolution, the Jacobins Committee for Public Safety. I think with the fake elections, Scott, it's an interesting point. At what level would you declare your election victory? If you claim an election victory with 99.7% of the vote, is that just a little bit over the top? If I'm becoming a dictator, I'm giving it a, a good 65%. Good 65 Because what happens when the average person meets three people who are opposed to your regime? Did they just accidentally meet the th- only three people in Haiti <laughs> who are who are opposed to Duvalier? That, that 0.3%? Mind you, it comes down to the ballot paper as well. Because some of these fake elections, so should... Uh, dictator X stay in power for another five years is the question on the ballot paper and then there's a yes or no or sometimes there's just a yes (laughs) so sometimes it's very difficult to vote no especially when there's bayonets and and rifles at the polling stations so it's either yes or a donkey vote (laughs) exactly I think the the declaration of a of a win with sixty five percent of the vote probably looks a bit more acceptable to the outside world. Once I hear someone claiming victory with ninety nine point seven percent of the vote, I'm starting to wonder why they bother to have an electoral commission at all. <laughs> I agree. Uh, the other one, the cult of personality, you mentioned Duvalier, um, who rewrote the world's prayer. But you know, you also have Saddam and Erdogan, Genghis, Caesar, all these men having this cult of personality around them. Sometimes that's during their rule. Other times it's after the rule. So before the end of the Second Vietnam War in 1975, Ho Chi Minh was dead. But then once the North had taken over the whole of Vietnam, then they renamed Saigon as Ho Chi Minh City. So his successors in North Vietnam wanted to carry on the name of Ho Chi Minh. That wasn't Ho himself doing that. That was done to try and make it appear as a as a continuity um, so sometimes that cult of personality is carried on by the successors of the regime i don't know if raul castro took up smoking cigars for for example when he took over from his brother similar to lenin he became almost deified in the soviet union upon his death the other sure sign of a dictator is the corruption and embezzlement and kleptocracy Saddam Hussein and Idi Amin giving money to people of his tribe and ethnic group, putting family members in office. Any resemblance to the current US presidency is purely coincidental. Going to get in trouble with this one. So who else was a bit of an embezzler? We know that the Turkish president, Recep Erdogan, has built that presidential palace on clearing national park forests. What was his power bill? $60,000 a month? Especially when you're not using social media because you've banned it. (laughs) Exactly. Pinochet did pretty well out of his presidency. We talked about Mugabe in episode nine. Printing money, then taking it to London to buy Gucci Grace some Gucci. Yeah, precisely. Caesar certainly was uh, pretty well off, and I'm sure some of that was through book sales, but 
perhaps not all of it. He did pretty well when he was governor of Gaul in terms of extracting taxes and tribute from the locals. Benito Mussolini had his country house on the water just outside Rome, which allowed him to sleep with three different women a day. And Fidel Castro also definitely the richest man in Cuba, despite the fact that he he claimed to be on the national Cuban wage of $3 a day. He has a few too many yachts (laughs) for that to be the case. And the Duvaliers, father and son, were not only quite well off, but actually flaunted their wealth in episode five, where we talked about Duvalier and Castro. I think we snuck in a mention about Duvalier's son's wedding, the sheer volume of money that was spent on on that was absolutely obscene the entire gdp of haiti was just getting funneled into his pocket and of course some of that had come from the u.s anti-communist funds as well yes that's true it's certainly been an interesting business model even in the the dictators that we've spoken about so far in the second half of the 20th century the way to become a dictatorship was to be anti-communist and to be on the radar of the united states so that they would give you lots of money so that you could stay in power and therefore that country would stay anti-communist. It was almost a bidding war between the um, United States and the Soviets as to what sort of regimes would come to power in those countries. And the, the US was, probably still is, but certainly was very nervous about what had happened in Cuba with Soviet backing and, and wanted to ensure that that couldn't happen on their doorstep again. The other points on our dictator bingo is absurd titles, and we've, we've heard about Idi Amin, um, military regalia, and most importantly, wearing medals. And this is an important one. It's the scapegoating of groups. You've got you know the Jews. You've mentioned the communists, the kulaks, which is something the communists scapegoated, the kulaks, the richer peasants. In uh, Haiti, the scapegoating of the mulattoes, the, the mixed race group there, and even in Uganda the scapegoating of Jews and uh, Asians. In Zimbabwe, Mugabe scapegoated the the whites. Whenever a leader starts talking very, very negatively about one group, you start to get nervous. And the most important sign of a dictator, Uncle Ian, do you know what that is? It is the (laughs) moustache. Uncle Ian is very offended as a moustachioed gentleman. Saddam Hussein, Ho Chi Minh, Videa, Pinochet, and of course, Enver Pasha. Check his show notes, podcast episode imagery with um, Enver Pasha against Erdogan. That moustache is just phenomenal. Absolutely beautiful. And, and we'll meet other moustaches, and uh, certainly there seems, to be a, there seems to be a theme in that regard. And of course, some of the, the dictators that we've covered, like Ivan and Genghis Khan, came from societies where shaving wasn't a thing. But it, it, it's starting to worry me a bit, the number of moustaches that we're meeting. We've also got a bit of some letters that we need to discuss. We've had a lot of feedback from fans. Uncle Ian, what have we got? A couple of pieces of listener feedback. Scott uh, Dean from the Gold Coast wrote to us and said, So far, Genghis and Edie have been on my shortlist, um, but I'm curious how you were going to structure the second round of the tournament. Now, Dean, um, please keep listening because all will be revealed. We also got some uh, feedback from Stephen from the Central Coast. He asked, Is it bad form to take hints from the best practices of the dictators to get my way in the household? I wouldn't take Idi Amin's advice and chop off your wife's arms and legs and put the legs where the arms go and the arms where the legs go. I don't recommend that. 
But if you wanted to do as Pol Pot did and dress all your children up in the same clothes and make them work in the backyard, I think that's okay. I mean, you could have fake elections in your household, maybe. You could vote yourself head of the family. With 99.7% of the vote? Yes. Unless you've got a very large family, it's mathematically difficult to do. Well, EDR Min, possibly, with the size (laughs) of his family. (laughs) He's got 27 kids or 47 kids or something silly. I think in order to make that work in the household, obviously, grow a moustache. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Secondly, look at what opportunities you have for embezzlement. I think a cult of personality would probably help in, in that regard. Maybe name the house after yourself. Yeah. Um, name the street after yourself. Start small, though. Start with name a room after yourself and, and grow from there. And I think it's also worth looking at what opportunities there are for censorship. Yeah, I would definitely censor any negative opinions about yourself. In the household, that can be difficult because you don't have control of, of the media, but you could just walk away if someone says something you don't like. Wearing a uniform with medals to breakfast probably wouldn't be the first strategy. And the one thing you should never do is try to ban pasta. Coming soon on the podcast, we'll be going to Southeast Asia. We'll be going to Indonesia. We'll be going to the Philippines. We'll be going back to Russia. We'll be going to the Balkans, Yugoslavia. We'll be going back to Italy. And we will be going to a little country east of France and west of Poland. <laughs> but next week, we are heading to France. I reckon this will be our best episode. It, it's going to be a, a big matchup. It's humongous. We've got Charlemagne up against Napoleon Bonaparte. Heavy hitters in the tournament for round 11. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week in France. Thank you, Uncle Ian. Thank you, Scott. do some further reading on on some dictators uncle you might read out a couple of things that you might be interested in the book i've most enjoyed reading as we've we've done our research over the first 10 episodes was research for episode eight so the book i most enjoyed reading was the fall of the ottomans written by a chap called rogan now i started reading that thinking that it would tell me about gallipoli it would tell me about um, beersheba in palestine but it also covers the, the Balkan Wars of 1912 to 13 and covers the Armenian Genocide of which we spoke. Iraqi oil was a thing even in the First World War. It tells me about the early career of Lawrence of Arabia um, and it tells me about the early career of Mustafa Kemal, who we came to know as Ataturk. I found that book really fascinating. I've also enjoyed listening to some uh, some other podcasts so i'm happy to uh, give some plugs scott if i may to some other podcasts once people have listened to all of our podcasts uh, yes uh, then uh, i would recommend if you want to learn more about julius caesar um, i would recommend the uh, the history of rome podcast run by mike duncan i would recommend the emperors of rome podcast run by monash university If you want to learn a bit more about the uh, history of uh, England, I would recommend a podcast called Rex Factor. They review every uh, British ruler. So they did episodes on Henry VIII and on Oliver Cromwell. Also, Radio National's Late Night Live in the last few months has run a few dictator-related episodes. 
Um, again, I don't know if this is coincidental. On the 18th of June 2020 was an episode about cooking for dictators, and there's some fun facts in there about Fidel Castro's appetite. Another episode about some up-and-coming dictatorships, um, which was run on the 23rd of June 2020. There's another podcast which, from its title, appears to be uh, light-hearted. Now, Scott, you and I are being very serious and very objective as we go through our podcasts. <laughs> A podcast called Evil Dudes of History, 